Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Streaming live at wordradio.com. As you know, February is Black History Month. We've got someone with us now who is going to share about a very, well, I don't know if I would say special time in our history, but uh, certainly one that we should know more about. Dr. Hannah Durkin is with us now. She is the author of The Survivors of the Clotilda, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the American Slave Trade. And the Clotilda, as you may remember, is the last slave ship that reached U.S. shores, and that happened in July of 1860. Welcome to Reality Check, Dr. Durkin. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us, first of all, as I people might be able to tell from your accent, you are a scholar and an educator and an author from uh, the UK. What got you into researching uh, about this journey of the Clotilda? Yes, yeah, so I've been working on a slightly related project. So I was working on the films of the writer Zorina Hurston. Um, I was working on her as part of a film project because she was quite possibly the earliest professional um, African-American woman filmmaker. So I was trying to write about her and I was trying to... So she was um, an ethnographic filmmaker traveling through Florida and Alabama in the late 1920s. And I was trying to identify the people who appeared in her films, see if I could tell their stories in, in any way. And one of those people was a man named Kazulu or Kudjo Lewis, who was long thought to be the last uh, Clotilda survivor and the last known Middle Passage survivor. But Hurston wrote about another survivor in a letter to Langston Hughes. Um, she talked about, um, yeah, another survivor. She didn't name her though. And so his his scholars had assumed that it would be impossible to know who this woman was. But I was, as I was trying to identify the names of the people in her films, at Hurston's films, I turned to a posthumously published book and I noticed in an appendix the list of all the people she interviewed. One of those people was named Sally Smith, born Tarquoise, Gold Coast, Africa. That was how she was designated. I knew then that this must be the woman. Um, and so I, I did as much research as I could to try and tell her story. And then it spiraled from that area into finding more survivors and trying to tell their stories as well. And this, uh, the films that you're talking about and referencing Zora Neale Hurston are the ones that she shot herself. These were uh, just sort of documentation of the people that she encountered as she traveled through the American South to uh, provide more information about their lives and, and all of that. Um, the Clotilda, uh, it occupies a, an interesting place in history as uh, the last slave ship to come to the Americas. This was at a time when slavery had been uh, effectively, at least the importation of new slaves, I think it is, uh, that that was then prohibited. Is is that the case? Yeah. So what happens is, I mean, so the United, the United Kingdom bans its slave trade in 1807. I should add that there are three in the century before that it trafficked three million people, so mm. it ends it, but it's also um, leading leading participant in the transatlantic slavery. The United States bans it in eighteen oh eight, so the following year, um, and it declares it piracy in eighteen twenty, which means it's a capital crime and you can be executed. But an illegal trade continues, and by the eighteen fifties, it's mostly centered on Cuba, but most of the ships that are traveling to 
Africa and then to Cuba with um, with captive people are mostly U.S. built ships. So the U.S. is still participating in an indirect way in the slave trade in the 1850s. Um, but the the Clotilda voyage is, of course, um, as you say, a voyage that took place that the Clotilda lands in in Mobile Bay in July 1860, so nine months before the Civil War begins. And you found out that there were actually over 100 survivors of the Clotilda that uh, remained part of the United States and in various capacities and did various things. Tell us a little bit about how you were able to find them and then what you found out about their lives. Yeah, so it was so uh, basically part of the process because a, a community of survivors in Mobile uh, was was known about, even if the Clotilda was dismissed as a hoax uh, by many historians until very recently. But um, identifying other survivors was, was, well, it's quite a laborious process, but because of the digitization of material, it's much easier to do this now than it would have been, say, far, even five years ago. But it involved looking at, in many cases, at census data and trying to work out looking for people who are African-born on the census in Alabama, also looking at recently digitized newspaper articles that might allude to people who were African-born and maybe in very rare occasions having interviews with them. A lot of the time, people were listed as wanderer survivors, but but the, even the Mobile survivors were often listed as wanderer survivors. So I realized even if, so I should explain the wanderer was the penultimate U.S. slave ship. And that landed uh, docked on, off Jekyll Island in Georgia in December 1850, November, December 1858, but about 19 months before the Cotilda. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a group, mostly, mostly very young boys and very young men um, who were trafficked there. About three, more than nearly 500 people on board, uh, only just over 300 people survived that journey. Mm. So in your what must have been exhaustive research, you were able to connect 110 people, I believe it is, back to the Clotilda. Yeah. So I don't think so. I I probably I think I I maybe got to more like 80 or 90. So there are still people whose names we don't know, but it's it's a much higher figure than we had before. So 110 were forced on board the Clotilda. And probably about seven of them didn't survive the journey. Mm. And a couple of them, at least two of them, appear to have died within months of actually arriving in Alabama. Mm. If you're just joining us, I'm Tanya Pendleton, and this is Reality Check. And we are here with Dr. Hannah Durkin. She is the author of The Survivors of the Clotilda, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives, of the American slave trade. So as you started to research and connect uh, these survivors back to this last slave ship, what were you able to find out about their lives? So they docked in Alabama. Did they end up all over the country? Did most of them stay in Alabama? Or or what were you able to find out? And and what stood out to you about uh, some of the stories that you were able to find? Yes, so they all appear to have stayed in Alabama, um, as far as I can tell. So a lot of them, about 30 of them end up in Mobile, and most of the rest are sent to the Cotton Belt of central Alabama. Some of them, as we already knew, and I've, I've just been, actually this past week, I've been in Africatown. So some of them established a community known as African Town, uh, now, it's now known as Africatown, their own mm-hmm. township north of Mobile, and they established their own 
they establish their own church and school um, and they they build this community in which they designate someone a leader and other people as judges. And this is a highly successful community that this is um, a community where they own their own businesses. This is a community of maybe two to 3,000 people in the early 20th century. And in fact, the most successful businessmen within that community are the are Clotilda Spires, so Charlie Lewis. And when he, he dies, that, that title really passes to Isaiah Keeby, another survivor. And the women as well, they are going to the sawmills and they are cooking their own food and selling their own food. These are traveling chefs. And again, highly successful businesswomen. In central Alabama, um, I'll give you an example of Booja Moore, who wasn't, unlike most of the Clotilda survivors, she was fully grown when she was um, trafficked. So uh, most of the Clotilda survivors, there were an equal, women, an equal number of male and female, but most of them were children or very, very young people. But Booja Moore was a mother to three children, including a baby. And those three children are left behind on the West African coast. Mm. And she lives for another 70 years without those three children. But what she determines to do is um, she's determined to live the life of a Yoruban tradeswoman, as she would have done back home. So she travels. She's She lives just outside Montgomery. She catches the train. And bear in mind, this would have been, of course, a segregated train. She travels into Montgomery twice a week to sell wares that she forages um, around her home. And she's basically a local celebrity. And she does this until 1925, and she's physically no longer able to do so. And um, she is doing this on Dexter Avenue, which is where um, which is where Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus to a white man. And of course, it's also where the state capitol building, so the first capital of the Confederacy, is as well. And she probably knew E.D. Nixon, who was the first leader of the Montgomery bus boycott before Dr. King took over. Um, and of course, uh, there's time to give another example. Matilda McCrea was two years old when she was trafficked across the Atlantic with her mother and three sisters. Her two brothers were left behind on the coast. But Matilda McCrea in 1931, when she's in her early 70s, walks 15 miles from her home in rural Dallas County to Dallas County Courthouse to demand reparations. And of course, the answer is no. The white judge says, turns her away. But that's the same courthouse, of course, where Selma voting rights campaigners gather, um, you know, just over 30 years later. So this is, you know, these connections um, between the Clotilda survivors and the civil rights movement really, really striking. Dr. Durkin, was there something that connected uh, the Clotilda survivors? Were they family members? Were they people that came from a specific place in Africa? Because what you're describing is people that despite the fact that they were enslaved and and, and trafficked, uh, that they found success in various aspects uh, of their lives once they got to the U.S. Yeah, so as far as I can tell, the evidence suggests that most, if not all of them, came from present-day Oyo states in Nigeria. So they were Yoruban people. Um, they were from the same town. And as we see with Matilda McCreer and her family, her mother and her three, you know, these are family groups in, in the quite, you know, certainly some some cases. And so they do appear to have been, whether they're blood relatives or not, or simply just neighbours, they are clearly people who are closely associated with one another and i was talking to the great great granddaughter of um, a survivor named kanko lottie dennison in the united states and she was just remarking on how 
this woman who wasn't part of Africa Town, she lived in the centre of Mobile, but would travel all the time to see um, Kazula Kudjo Lewis, who was the man that Zorino Hurston filmed an interview. You know, they would they would meet all the time. There was just close connection between them. And when Kanko died, Kazula would still travel down to visit her family. You know, so there were these really close bonds. Um, and of course, they're so well bonded by the horror of the Middle Passage as well. Do you believe that the fact that you have discovered more survivors gives us a much better picture of what it was like to be an enslaved person in the United States, even though this was the final slave ship that did reach these shores? Yeah, and I hope as well. I mean, the, the sad thing is the fact that we, there are so few surviving testimonies, these are women middle passage survivors in particular. And so the voices that we get, you know, the interviews that do survive, that, you know, collate, that collated in this book, hopefully give people more of an insight into them, into, into women, and also the survival and endurance, right? So what we learn is just how, despite going through the worst things imaginable, they work so hard to hold on to their cultural traditions, their identities in so many different ways that we can see how, you know, how people did leave their presence and, you know, all their influence and presence and their spiritual and cultural traditions. And, and um, you know, I found connections with the quilting community of Jeeves Bend, which is long thought to have, you know, that community is long thought to have West African quilting influence, you know, artistic influences and quilting patterns. And there were Clotilda survivors living in and around Jeeves Bend well into the 20th century. So you can see how the presence and influence of that community still survives in, in various ways in, in the present day. What do we know about their descendants? Uh, have you been able to trace them as well? You talked about uh, talking to one of them. Uh, how many descendants have you been able to find uh, of the uh, 80 who survived? So I've been helping, I mean, people. Have, a lot of people have been doing their own research to try and identify their connections when they've suspected the connection. I've been trying to help and I'm working with, you know, the Clotilda Descendants Association. So if someone comes forward and they're wondering, could this be a, a descendant? I, I'll try and help them if I can um, you know, establish those connections. But I was talking to, well, actually, this was, I was with him last, this this past week, but our conversation was a while ago. Um, Johnny Creer, who is the grandson of the last Clotilda survivor, Matilda McCreer, he was saying that he was trying to count her descendants. And he got to about 140 and gave up. Because it was just too many to count. So there must be lots of descendants out there who probably don't yet know that they're descendants. Um, and I, yeah, I hope the book might be a way in for them to begin to, to establish those connections. Dr. Hannah Durkin, the author of The Survivors of the Clotilda, The Lost Stories and the Last Capt of the Last Captives of the American Slave Trade. Thank you so much for being with us on Reality Check. The book is out now and you can find out more about the extraordinary survivors of the last slave ship to reach American shores in 1860. You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM and online at wordradio.com. 